electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, NVIDIA Insanity. The little-known stock that surged 1,200% in the last couple of days because they dared even mention NVIDIA. Call it a black gold rush. What is behind the biggest bunch of oil deals ever? From black gold to digital gold, the big move behind Bitcoin and why? Carl Icahn setting his sights skyward once again. Forget TWA. Carl betting big on a new airline now. Putting the swoosh behind him, Tiger Woods expected to make a big announcement within the hour on who his next partner is. And Make It Mondays, a restaurant entrepreneur on how he got his burger business booming. And oh yeah, if that's not enough, peak performance expert Tony Robbins is here on set sharing his highly valuable advice on achieving financial freedom, the best ways to build wealth, and the insights into his latest book. All that and more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up, because a Monday last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. All right, what an hour ahead. And first up, though, on last call tonight, Another big day, mostly, for your money. We got new highs for the Dow and the S&P 500 earlier in the day before a little bit of a pullback toward the end. The Nasdaq Composite now less than 2% away from it hitting an all-time high. Small caps, they were the big winners today. The Russell 2000, a nice 2% pop, best day in four weeks. Remember, one of my predictions for the year was small over big. Not there yet, but today was a good move. And here's a curious and maybe some would consider concerning stat from Charlie Bellello. The top 10 holdings of the S&P 500 now make up one third of the entire index. The highest concentration of just 10 stocks since at least 1987. 10 stocks, one third of 500. Wow, pretty crazy. The question is whether or not it is a reason to be worried at all or just do what you've been doing and ride this out. So let's find out. Joining us now is one of the top strategists on the street, Fundstrat managing partner, head of research, not the drummer, Tom Lee. Tom, it's great to have you back on. Uh, that waiting thing, this is not new necessarily, but it keeps, it keeps growing. That bowling ball on top of a pencil, as I've called it, continues to get larger and heavier. Is it a reason at all for Tom Lee to be worried? Um, Brian, it's not. I think one thing the viewers have to keep in mind is the world is short of workers, right? There's a global labor shortage and there's demand for AI and automation. And it's these seven companies or the, you know, the eight or nine that are providing these solutions. So their market cap's growing, not just because the U.S. economy's growing. It's, they're really solving global problems. So I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's showing you how important technologies become, U.S. tech companies. Yeah, I th- maybe, and uh, NVIDIA, okay? I mean, I, I think now we're contractually obligated to mention NVIDIA at least four times an hour. I'm kidding. Sort of, Tom. 
NVIDIA, basically the same size now as Amazon. It's part of that group that we talk about so much. Is it a mania? Is it deserved? You just mentioned AI, but I mean, we've gone from 150 bucks to 700 bucks in less than two years. I mean, it's pretty astounding to see the ascent, but we also know in the last two years, there's been a, a lot of transformation and I think really critical mass reached for AI. So to, to us, it doesn't seem like a bubble. It, it you know, there's real demand there. We're going to find out next week, obviously. But if there is a shortage of workers, we know that over time we have to replace salaried workers with silicon. And, and you know, that could be several trillion a year of demand. Uh, so I, I think it's too early to say it's a bubble. How big of a deal, if at all, maybe it's not, is tomorrow's consumer inflation data at 830 in the morning? Well, it's it's very important because we know the Fed has only two inflation reports before the March meeting. It's this report and the one next month. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the bond market's certainly going to react. I do think the bond market's been anticipating kind of a hot CPI reading tomorrow. So I think if it's a if it's it's a worse than expected report, I think the stock market could be nervous short term. But, you know, given how sentiment is and and flows have been finally turning positive for stocks, I think it would be short-lived weakness. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, you're not expecting a March cut, though, are you, Tom? It's May. That's right. Uh, I mean, I, I'd say the, the market's been pushing out the timing of cuts towards May. Um, you know, I think one of the sort of sticky points in the CPI report has been auto insurance. And, and as that lingers, that makes the Fed nervous about, you know, whether or mm -hmm. not we're getting towards 2%. But I, I do think the odds of a March cut are better than the 15% that are priced into the futures markets. Yeah, Tom, I want to switch gears to Bitcoin. It's been a big uh, couple of days, really, for Bitcoin. I'm sure you watched the Super Bowl last night. I don't know if you caught this. I did. And then I paused and I took a picture of my screen and I tweeted that out. CBS showing Jay-Z and Beyonce, because, of course, everybody knows Jay-Z and Beyonce. But look at that. Many people may not have noticed the guy they were hanging out with, the dude with the beard on the right to the viewer's right. Of course, Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, now runs financial firm Block. He's wearing a Satoshi Nakamoto sweater. Satoshi Nakamoto said to be the inventor of Bitcoin, which hit 50000 for the first time in more than two years. Why am I bringing this up? Uh, just a gratuitous Beyonce check. But hey, what a run in Bitcoin. What's changed just the last two or three weeks, Tom? Well, we know that the ability to buy Bitcoin has changed a lot, Brian, with the launch of the ETFs. And there are multiple ETFs, and it, it makes it easier now for people who have traditional brokerage accounts to buy Bitcoin. I think it's a wonderful development because it is really allowing people to finally have exposure without having to necessarily store their own private keys. And I think it was great to see that sort of subtle reference at the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I just think it was probably a, a Jay-Z and Beyonce move higher. But with Bitcoin, anything can be true. Tom Lee, always appreciated by man. Fundstrat. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, right. Brian. They're very welcome. There's your macro markets. Get a check on what happened inside the market today. On your stud and dud, the big winner, VF Corp. They've had all kinds of problems lately. But now you got an activist in there. Might have support of the founding family. A big insider buy. That stock popped 14%. Motorola Solutions down 11%. And let's get a quick check on the futures as well. They are not trading a whole lot, as you might imagine. All right, up next, we've got a very big and very special guest for you. Entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, Tony Robbins here on set. Share the strategies, 
of many of the world's greatest investors and show you how you can build extraordinary wealth. Good to see you again, Tony. Thank you very much for coming in. He's got a new book. We're going to nail it with him. Tony Robbins, next. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time for something very special. World-famous entrepreneur and philanthropist Tony Robbins has a new book out. It is called, I was going to hold it up. They got a graphic. It's called (laughs) The Holy Grail of Investing. It is written with world-class investor Christopher Zook. And it lays out seven unique strategies that have great created amazing returns over long periods of time. And in the book, Robbins speaks with business and investing legends like Bill Ford, billionaires Barry Sternlich, Robert Smith, Will Van Lowe, and many more. He's also been coaching hedge fund legend Paul Tudor Jones for over 20 years. And we are pleased to have Tony Robbins on set. Not sure who convinced you to schlep out to New Jersey. <laughs> Tony, we appreciate it. Well, thanks for having Good me. Good to see you again. Great Thank you very you much. Too. Why the book? Why now? Well, it's interesting. It's the third in my trilogy, and I wasn't planning on doing a third one, but I had the privilege. Well, if you're going to do a trilogy, you would need a third one. I wasn't counting on a third one. But I had the chance to interview 13 of kind of the masters in the universe, the masters of private equity, who, you know, 20 billion to $100 billion firms, but they're actually producing 20% compounded for decades, some of them 30%. And as you all know, for decades, you know, private institutions, big institutions, pension funds, ultra-wealthy people have had access but the general public has not had access, and most of them don't even understand the impact. For example, in the S&P 500 for the last 35 years, we know we've compounded at 9.2%. It's pretty darn good. You're doubling your money about every eight years. But you've got 14.2%, not with these guys, with average private equity. Mm. So imagine getting 50% more per year compounded for decades. So as an example, if you had a million bucks and you put it aside in the S&P 35 years ago, forgot about it, it's worth $26 million. Take the same million, same 35 years, put in private equity, average private equity, it's $139 million. So the ability to get much higher returns with less risk, which is what Ray Dalio's part of this book is about, is understanding the math of how to do that. And there's some new rules that make it accessible for people that are general investors. It's come come down, but let's be clear. And you make this point in the book, by the way, which is the private markets are now where the real money is going. Not to disrespect any of our audience and listeners out there that is going in the stock market. I'd take the 26 million on a million any day <laughs> and twice on Sunday, so Tony. Most of us. <laughs> but the big, big money is now in the private capital markets. Right. But are the, they've become more accessible, but are they accessible? 
Yeah, well, that, those are two good questions. So the first one is the rules have changed. They're beginning to change. Right now, it used to be 1% of the population could get access as an accredited investor, for example. Million-dollar net worth, not counting their house, as most of your investors know. 200000 income, 300000 for a couple. Today, it's 20% of households. But what's really cool is that I always said, why is it the richest people in the world get the greatest assets and the average person who needs it the most don't? Mm. Well, the House uh, decided in Congress that they agreed and they passed a bipartisan bill that says you can take a test now because you could have inherited your money. You could be a good businessman, but not a good investor. You take a test and then you'd be accredited. You don't need a million dollars. So the Senate's not taking it up. It looks bipartisan there as well. It should be there. So that's number one. But number two is... By the way, I love that because the term accredited, which I've said about a billion times in 20 years, should not just be because grandpa invented the seatbelt. Exactly right. Maybe you're a ding-dong, no matter how much money you have. If you know the risks, understand what you're doing, you're accredited. And what's interesting is in private equity, you could argue there's less risk for all those because they hold your money for a period of time. When the stock market's going up and down, they don't have to sell. You know, you're usually tied up for five years or 10 years, so you still need liquidity in public markets. But the high-end ultra net worth have 46% of the money in alternative investments, only 29 in the markets. That ought to tell you something, right? It's the kinds of returns. But the other one you bring up is really important. Can you get access? Because the best guys in the world, their funds get closed so quick. It's like trying to buy a brand new Ferrari. They've already sold them all Mm -hmm. to the Ferrari owners, right? Well, what's really interesting is I was lamenting about this, and I've got a certain amount of access because of my reputation and my brand and people I know, but I get little slivers. And I was saying to this friend of mine who used to work for Paul Tudor, he said, uh, I said, you know, it's just getting these small pieces. It doesn't make that big a difference. He said, don't you help me so much? I got to tell you something. He said, I want to tell you where I put most of my money. This guy's very successful, so I'm leaning in, you know. And he says, there's this company in Houston, Texas called Chasm. He said, Houston, Texas. I said, wait a sec, not Singapore, London, New York. He goes, no. They're outside the bubble, and here's what they've done. You don't have to fight to get into these funds anymore. You can actually purchase the fund, the companies themselves. You can become a general partner. As you know, you're a limited partner when you're an investor in one of these funds. But you are like the CEO, the CFO, and they make 2%, whether they make you money or not, and they make 20% of the upside, and people give that because they're amazing returns. Well, now you get the 2 and 20 It's pretty extraordinary. So I own 65 different firms, some of the biggest in the world now that I'm a partner in in that area. And anyone can start to do this. Another one's private credit. Brian, most of us know that the banks have tightened up massively since 2008, even more so with these recent regional banks. And so what's happened is private equity firms that are really smart at learning how to value companies and how they run, they started loaning to them. They became the alternative to the banks. And, you know, if you have a mortgage and it was fixed right now, you're happy you're still at 3%. But with interest rates jacked up, if you didn't, you might be paying seven or eight, two or three times what you're doing. Well, they're floating rates for these loans. So I can remember in 2021 when people were trying to get nothing from their returns on, on bonds and they go get 3.9% on junk bonds, big risks. We were getting 9% in private credit. And they have a 1% failure rate, which Amazing. banks would die for. And then there's sports. Did you read the New York Times today? Okay. Uh- no, but I read your chapter on sports. Okay, great. Okay, and this is my only thing, is that sports teams, I get it. It's the greatest asset in the world, Tony. It's also so expensive. It's like the 50 richest kings of Europe can that's own how it. That's it's been. I mean, that's it. Well, not can, can I mean, listen, I don't mean, you know, families out there struggling. I'm talking about even upper, well, you know, lower wealthy, upper middle class. Is there any way to get even a tiny sliver? The whole rules have changed. If you read the New York Times today, the only sport that's not adapted is the NFL. But the NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, uh, and Major League Hockey all have changed the rules in the last three years. And they've made it possible for a small number of firms to come in and provide capital for these. Now, 
These firms are not, first of all, they're not correlated. The holy grail is about getting eight to 12 uncorrelated investments. This is from Ray Dalio. If you can find eight to 12 that are uncorrelated you believe in, you reduce your risk 80% and increase your upside. It's the great, that's the holy grail. Well, don't give too much away because you're trying to sell the book. <laughs> no, I don't care about I, that. That's what I'm just we're, we're, guessing. Hey, by the way, everybody buys the book. We're giving 100% of the profits, to, like my last three books, Defeating America's Law. You're learning. Well, then we really but, want but, to sell But let book. me get across to you this. They changed the rules now. So they're not correlated to what's happening in the stock market. They have a monopoly. Imagine your fans are fanatics. They're multi-generational. You don't just put butts in seats anymore. When inflation happens, they charge more for a hot dog. But their real value is now they're media operations and real estate operations. So I'll give you a quick example. It's an 18% compounded return in the last 10 years amongst those four. That's 11% in the S&P, non-correlated. Uh, Peter Gruber's a good friend of mine. Uh, we own some sports teams together. I spent years trying to get to a sports team. Have enough money, do it, go through the year's microscope, but now you don't have to do that. So now I've got an interest, for example, in the LA Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox, in the Warriors and the Utah Jazz, right? It's an amazing opportunity. But here's an example. Peter bought the team, the Dodgers, mm -hmm. for $2 billion. You with, with my friend Scott Minard. That's right. Late a, great friend Scott. That's so, right. You know, I spoke at his... Uh, oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Beautiful. So this great team goes out and buys it. Everybody in the media said they're insane. No one has spent more than $800 million for a baseball team. Maybe the Dodgers are worth a billion. So I go to Peter, who's got, you know, I think it's 45 Academy Award nominations. Yeah, you'd know like business. all of his movies. Yeah. So I said, Peter, I said, look, I'm your partner. Tell me. I know you're not dumb. Why are you paying $2 billion? He said, Tony, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger until Tuesday. I'm going to make the announcement. Call me, and then we'll come party together. So I call him up after the <laughs> announcement. You know what he did? He sold the local TV rights for the LA Dodgers for $7 billion and made $5 billion that day. If you own the NBA team, you get one-thirtieth of every other team, whether you're the worst team or the best of the national media. You keep your local media. You have the real estate. And of the last, to give you an example, uh, Michael Jordan. Yep. He bought the Hornets for $275 million just under 12 years ago. A group of people I'm part of as well just bought from him for $3 billion. And that's a typical transaction in the NBA right now. It's insane. I, I, you know, we, we've but, had, but we've had here, NBA owner on this program recently. Average investors, though, now can take a tiny piece, almost like owning a piece of IBM, but it's fun. It's your sports team. It's non-correlated, and it's got amazing returns. Even if, and the cool thing about it is, and we're going to let you go, but we're going to bring you back. Tony's coming back later on in the hour. We're not going to make you come all this way and do that. Uh, the coolest thing about the sports thing is, even if your team stink, Yes. You can still make money because they're probably true. still going to go up in value. That's true. I'm a Chargers that's fan. True. true. You know what that's like? <laughs> yes, I was from San Diego. <laughs> Only the Chiefs won. Don't say it, but we're not done with you yet, Tony Robbins. Okay. Come back here in about 20. I want to talk more about the markets. And just some of the things you've learned from Paul Tudor Jones Great. and Ray and others. Thank you. All right. We're not done on this show. Still ahead. The stock that went soaring today thanks to just an NVIDIA name drop. Herb Greenberg is here to throw water on this red-hot name. Plus, another day, another multi-billion dollar deal in the oil patch. Is that a sign $100 oil could be coming again soon? This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
All right, welcome back. Another day, another energy deal. Diamondback Energy buying Endeavor Energy for $26 billion, including debt. Endeavor, you probably never heard of them, but they're the biggest privately owned producer in Texas's Permian Basin. The deal now makes Diamondback the third biggest oil and gas producer in the region behind only Exxon and Chevron. Fang shares surged today and maybe, maybe capping an epic black gold rush. Check out the deals that have been done in just the last couple of months. Exxon buying Pioneer for $60 billion. Chevron Hess, $53 billion. Oxy buying Crown Rock, $12 billion. Chevron also bought PDC Energy for about $8 billion. And APA buying Calon Petroleum for a few billion. Permian Resources buying Earthstone Energy for the same price. In all, seven big deals that will permanently change the makeup of America's oil production. And now it's really just three companies, Exxon, Chevron, and Diamondback, that kind of rule Texas's and America's most valuable oil area. Joining us now for more is Pickering, Energy Partners Advisory Director and former Credit Suisse Chairman of Global Energy Investment Banking, Osmar Abib. Uh, Osmar, first off, do you regret retiring from investment banking because they're, they're just printing money right now? What's going on? Uh, well, Brian, good, good to see you again. I think the last time we spoke was right before the uh, uh, Exxon uh, Pioneer deal. And apparently there's been a lot of dance partners out there. Uh, no, I don't mind uh, my retirement. I'm now an investor, so I hope to benefit from a number of these deals. Is is this it? Uh, I don't know all the names, but I mean, have we seen the end of that dance? Is all the best rock, as they would say, taken up now? Uh, no, I, I think there's still significant uh, potential for continued M&A. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the other buyers, uh, frankly, don't want to be left behind. Um, and there's a, a, a limited number of quality material companies that have good rocks. And that number is getting smaller every day. So now that it seems the investors are accepting these deals and are responding well to the announcement of these deals, I think that there will be continued activity. Now, whether deals get struck is a different issue. But I would say the, the, there will be a tremendous amount of heightened dialogue going on. Do you foresee any regulatory issues, given that the concentration of production, as we just said, Osmar, is going to be really with just three massive players? Well, it, it is a global industry, and there is a significant amount of oil supply in the world. So it's really a function of how you define the market. And I think what you were referring to, Brian, is the Permian Basin. And there's plenty of other very prolific, high-quality basins in the United States and around the world. So, no, I don't believe that the upstream business will uh, receive tr a tremendous amount of re regulatory scrutiny on these deals, although they certainly will investigate and, and look at them. Uh, but I, I don't think it's a, a substantial risk. Is there going to be a new hot spot? I've, I've read some stuff that all these deals and the valuations that they make make things like parts of Canada look undervalued, maybe parts of Oklahoma look undervalued. Yeah, I think the M&A dialogue is going on on a global basis, and there will be consolidation in other basins and in certain cases across basins. And, uh, you know, obviously Hess had a substantial uh, position in, in Guyana, and I think that's a significant reason that Chevron pursued that deal. So it, was, it isn't uh, just in the United States and just yeah. in the Permian. I think there are dialogue, there's dialogue going everywhere. Uh, the deal did just uh, re recently uh, dropped, but for example, in Australia, there was a very substantial deal going on between Woodside and Santos, 
and which would have made a you know created the dominant player there. Yeah. So I think those type of things are happening or, or continuing to uh, those discussions mm-hmm. are continuing. I think there's also potential for even an integrated deal uh, and potential for M and A outside of the upstream. And the well, oil and gas business, you know, has a number of significant verticals and consolidation rationale uh, applies to those sectors as well. I'm sure we'll talk more about it uh, coming up in Houston in a few weeks. Osmar, I'll see you there at the Sierra Week Conference. Osmar, we'll be talking about the next. We'll be talking about the next deal. Yes, we will. All right, Osmar, thank you. All right, coming up, Nvidia, insanity. The stock that went up hundreds of percent today because of a small mention. Herb Greenberg, up with that next. If you watched on Friday or listened, we hope you did, you know that we gave you one remarkable stat around NVIDIA, that the one stock is now bigger than all 82 stocks in Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index combined. Well, we know you like that one so much, we wanted to find another similar comparison to make a point. So here it is, courtesy of Creative Planning. There are 23 stocks in the S&P energy sector, names we just mentioned, Exxon, Chevron, Diamondback, Conoco, and 19 more. As of today, the combined value of those 23, the largest 23 oil and gas companies in America, is $1.6 trillion. With its recent run, NVIDIA is now worth $1.78 trillion, which means that NVIDIA alone, NVIDIA by itself, is worth $180 billion more than the 23 biggest oil and gas companies in America combined. Okay, you're probably thinking, so what? Oil and gas, it's dinosaur juice. It's literally a fossil. And NVIDIA is the future, totally, and maybe right. But we also got to note this. Charlie Bellello and his team said the combined net income of those 23 energy companies is a spiffy $147 billion. NVIDIA makes $19 billion in net income. It actually makes less than Chevron or Exxon on their own. And just 13% of what all those energy companies make. Is one more right than the other? Can they, can they both be right? The valuation is deserved, even if it's not yet kicking off the cash. Hmm, the market will figure it out. But whatever happens right now, NVIDIA's monster run is 100% random, but interesting. And it's been generating a lot of profit for a lot of people. So congratulations. All right. Sticking with NVIDIA-related news, it briefly surpassed Amazon in market cap today. And of course... Right now, it seems like anything NVIDIA touches or even maybe sniffs turns to gold. Call it the Taylor Swift of stocks. An example, chip designer Arm Holdings up nearly 30% today. In one week, the value of Arm, it's kind of an ignored mid-cap semiconductor company based in England, has doubled. The company cites NVIDIA's use of Arm's technology as a long-term growth driver. Arm Holdings, which, by the way, was a different stock until it was taken private in 2016, now is bigger than Texas Instruments, Uber, or Boeing. It's nearly 11 United Airlines. And as wild as that is, there's this, which we did not even want to mention, but kind of have to because of what's going on. It's a tiny company called Beamer Imaging. Beamer is an Israeli video technology company. They basically help compress video to take up ledge storage space. One analyst covers the stock. They have 25 employees. They only went public last March, and the stock really did nothing until now, bounced between like $1 and $4. But they just announced a forthcoming partnership with NVIDIA. So Beamer went from being a $2 stock on Friday to at one point 
$35 today before falling 25 bucks back down off that high. Still, even with that close up 371% today, your next guest calls it Algos Gone Wild. That would be CNBC contributor Herb Greenberg, also the editor of Substack, Herb Greenberg on the street out. So you're saying the computers have taken control, Herb? The computers have taken control. They've been taking control. And this is just one of those great examples of, Brian, it's just insanity. I mean, when you look at Beamer and you look at what's really going on, is it really a partnership? I mean, this is a company none of us have ever heard of until today. Most of us have never heard of. There was a headline. The headline says, Beamer and NVIDIA team up to accelerate adoption, blah, blah, blah. And is that what they're really doing? They're going to announce some joint study at a at a conference later this month. And as one friend who knows this, this, this industry says to me, he says, this stupid company has transcoded for years, constantly bragging about its partners and still only doing a couple of million dollars in revenues. The only difference now is they're partnering with NVIDIA on the same boring thing that there'll be a lot of competition for. So this is just a market that sees something. NVIDIA is the magnet. It's pulling up anything remotely related. And I think, Brian, that becomes a potential problem for investors who hop on the bandwagon and think, as always is the case, they think they're smarter than everybody else. And there will be an empty bag. Yeah. And an empty well, bag will be. The, the one thing I saw, know. I went to their website. You know, again, I, I don't want to be I'm not making this as a you know, definitive statement. But what I, I saw what you said. And but they were also the company and they could be a fantastic company. Again, not saying it either way, but it, basically their video compression technology, I think, just runs on NVIDIA chips also. And they, so they have the NVIDIA logo sort of like we're working with NVIDIA because the NVIDIA we probably have stuff here at CNBC that's powered by NVIDIA. Yeah. And that's no reason to invest in a company. If you re- look, the press release talks about that the technology is backed by giants like Amazon, Google and Microsoft. When you first look at it, you go, wait a second, this company have a relationship. And then you go and you dig through their filings and you realize they have different business relationships with this company. Look, they've got <laughs> the revenues, Brian. Here's what you need to know. The revenues about three million dollars. This is a tiny company. They got a big break here with a great press release. We'll see where it is in a week. Let's let's talk about it in a week. Yeah, we will. Let's talk about it in a week. BMR, investors, just be careful out there. Could go up, could go down a lot. What about Arm Holdings? You and I are old enough to remember when Arm was its own company. It got taken private, got republished, you know, went went public last year again. SoftBank owns a chunk. Why did this company double in a couple days? This is not Beamer Imaging. This is a, they're a giant company. Heavily shorted stock in a market that's squeezing anything related, remotely related to AI or supposedly, and I, there are people who would argue that ARM as an AI play is, you know, it is, but it's at the low end. The big question people want to know today, I will tell you, there are people I'm talking to today who say they wonder if today, not that it happened, that the underwriters would maybe be granting SoftBank, which owns 90% of the company, an early exit instead of waiting until March because the stock is doing so well, let them get the money they need so badly today. Now that's just the kind of speculation people are just talking about in trading rooms, whether it's real or not, I don't know. Um, but it, you know, it shot up on the news from the earnings and the earnings themselves, I've talked to people throughout who raised some red flags over those because they're so China related. And the question is whether it's sustainable more than we need to talk about here. That's it. And we are watching BMR again. Could soar or not. We'll see. Herb Greenberg, thank you as always. All right, coming up, he's dubbed the CEO whisperer. Tony Robbins, a leader called upon by leaders. So what advice is he giving the world's most influential people now? Maybe what does he think of NVIDIA? 
is going to rejoin us right after this. All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you and Walsh should be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, he's back in airlines. Carl Icahn reporting a nearly 10% stake in JetBlue and considering a push to get on the board. As you can imagine, JetBlue stock flying, sorry, on the news. Icahn says the stock is undervalued. Now, the last time the billionaire got involved in an airline, it was TWA. Remember them back in the 80s? It didn't end well for the airline, but it did end up very well for Carl Icahn. In the meantime, <laughs> Franklin Templeton has become the latest Wall Street firm to apply for a spot Ether ETF, whatever that is. They submitted the S-1 filing today. The move comes a month after spot ETFs hit the market. Ether, by the way, like Bitcoin, saw a nice pop. All right. We're not going to ask somebody like Tony Robbins to come all the way out here to New Jersey studios just to give him one segment. No way. So we've asked him to graciously stick around. He either accepted or we locked the doors from the inside. I'm not sure. Either way, we talked about his new book, The Holy Grail of Investing. But I want to broaden it out just a bit more. We know this is about private markets. And yes. That you can make more money in private markets. But does Tony Robbins, do you still, you've written a number of investing books. Yes. Do you have a view on the stock market or are you totally out? No, I'm not totally out. I have about uh, 24, 25% roughly in that category because I need liquidity and I want to be part of some of the opportunities. Because private stuff ties it up a little more, right? Yeah, for five or 10 years, depending yeah. upon where you're going. So you still need to do that. But, um, you know, I, I'm a little concerned, as I'm sure many people are, that the Magnificent Seven are dominating the S&P so powerfully. What is it, 28% of everything is coming from seven companies, mostly driven you know, by AI. So uh, I'm concerned a little bit in that area. But you know, I'm not, I don't try to time the market. That's absurd. No one's really successful doing that. And for the long term, it's still a huge and important part of my investment capital. So you're not doing the Tony Robbins day trader thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> from your studios no. and everything? No. no. No interest in that whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, too. I mean, and, and one thing you notice in your book, and you note in your book, and I'm sad that I'm old enough now to remember when the stock market was much bigger. Yes. And in fact, we've lost half. A little, more than tra- half little more than half yeah. of all publicly traded companies yeah. in 20 to 30 years. Yeah, from 8,000 down to 3,700, which is why, look, there's 250,000 companies in the U.S. that are 100 million to 3 billion that need financing, need to grow, need to expand. And that's another reason why that market is so huge. But you know what's really interesting is with interest rates, I was just with Howard Marks, Ray Dalio, and Jeffrey Gunlock uh, in Canada a couple days ago. No money there. Yeah, pretty amazing people, <laughs> pretty amazing structures. They're all three talking about how they think interest rates are more here to stay. You know, the market said they're going to cut, they're going to cut. They said, you know, Powell may cut one more time. He wants to be known for, you know, shutting down inflation. But they also don't think we're going to return. They think that these higher rates of inflation are what we're going to have to get used to, which is going to affect everybody's way of investing. So I think it's really important. Many of them are looking more for debt investments, where they think they can get equity-like investments in this environment, or at least they could a year or two ago, and they think that's going to return perhaps to that. You, you advise Paul Tudor Jones. You put that in your book. I'm not revealing anything private. You say for 20 years you've yes. actually been a, a coach of one of the world's most successful hedge fund managers out there. Obviously, you know Ray Dalio. What do these guys worry about? I mean, it's obviously it's not money, right? They don't have to worry about paying the rent. We get that. Yeah. What do they worry about? You know what's interesting? When I wrote my first book, I asked them all, do you experience financial pressure? And most of them still do. And it's insane because they have more money they can spend. But the reasons are different. So, for example, Paul Tudor, I think he's raised $3 billion here in New York to, you know, to help people through the Robin Hood Foundation. 
Um, his stress is how many things he's committed to that he wants to do on a larger scale. He wants to save forests. He wants to do this thing. So it's interesting. We can make ourselves feel pressure or a lack thereof no matter what within a moment based on what we focus on. So everybody has a different focus. I mean, Ray's concern is, you know, the, the changing world order, obviously. I'm sure you've interviewed him about this. We talk about it all the I time. I have not. Oh, wow, well, you've got to. He's um, welcome anytime. Yeah, he's, his description of looking at five centuries of how what happens to giant countries that expand, they start small, and how they start to fall apart and the criteria. And we're in like the fifth of six stages of that here in the U.S. And so he has great concern. The biggest concern besides our debt is that we don't treat each other well the level of internal conflict, and then you have an external power like China that's growing very strongly, uh, these factors start to come together. Then if you have something like global warming, if you're concerned about that, or you see some other change, we're in a delicate time here in this country. And so they're concerned about that, and the best solution is to find the middle. And we really, as a country, have to find the middle. We aren't there yet, obviously, but I think we've thrown our extremes both ways. Hopefully, we're moving towards the middle in the near future. I, you know, I, I don't know. I think so. I'd like to be hopeful. And I'd I'd like to nobody hopeful cares what I think, but social media is not that old. Yes. Social media really has only been around. And we know that exacerbates well, a know. lot of this. You stink. No, you stink. I'm on the red team. You're on the blue team. Yeah. Team Purple is the only team that we should be. That aside, I feel like we're in this moment in time where we're starting to shift, hopefully, back toward the middle. And I will be optimistic. America has a lot of problems, but I'll tell you what, there's probably no other country where a Tony Robbins could do what Tony Robbins did. 100% agree. And I tell that to young people that haven't traveled. Most people have a negative view of our country, have never gone anywhere else. I think one of the problems we have is we don't teach young people or most people in our country to really take advantage of free enterprise. Most people's biggest problem in their financial pressure is that they're consumers, they're not owners. The other day I was trying to get this point across to a young group of people. And do you have an iPhone? Uh, yes, I do. So I, I asked him, how many got an iPhone? 90% of an iPhone. I said, well, you talk to somebody who's had iPhones since the beginning. I've had every iPhone. I, I went and did the math. It was over $20,000 you've spent since 2017 on iPhones. And then if you took the same amount of money, and I went and found what the stock was. There it was. is. We're sh- look at it. We got oh, look, right behind. Look at this. See this? Yeah, right behind you. Yeah, very good. And it's over $200,000 you would have instead of. So if you bought a new day. iPhone with every iteration of iPhones, inflation adjusted. Uh, no, if you bought every it's $20,000. That's what you spent. Yep. But if at the same time, whatever the cost was the iPhone, I show it by each year, if you put that same amount of money on Apple stock, you'd have, have $200,000, $204,000 right now and spend it spending $20,000 plus. So it's like we're a consumer culture, and if you become an owner, the whole game changes. We have that opportunity, but we don't teach young people or most people how to tap into it. Why not? Uh, that's a larger question. No, that's probably a bigger than I can question for you. Oh, I mean, we don't. We, listen, there's a lot of things that we don't teach young people that we should be teaching about: that's consumer right. marketing, the stock market, finance. We had a kid on last week, but, but there's that, <laughs> yes. right? The value of your word, yes, yes no, those yes. types of things. So what do you think is the – there's a lot of CEOs that will either watch this now, listen to it, maybe watch or listen to our – we have a podcast, apparently, by the way, folks. I, I never tease it, but go check out the podcast. <laughs> what do CEOs most commonly ask you? Yes. And what's the piece of advice that you would give to – and I don't mean big public companies, Tim Cook, whatever. could be somebody who runs a 100-person company. Well, uh, my whole piece is to make sure you understand who you're coaching, who's in your organization. Leadership has to be different for everyone. But I think the biggest issue you're hearing today is the return to work. Um, about five, six months ago, I was at a place in Palm Beach where they had a, a private event for just the Fortune 200, and, um, or the Forbes 200. And I was invited. They didn't even bring staff in it. I was invited because of my relationships with Mark Benioff and some other CEOs. And I sat there and I listened, and they interviewed Ken Griffin from Citadel. Mm-hmm. And one of the people interviewing him said, well, how many days a week do people, can you get people to come show up at work? 
And Ken just looked at them like they're crazy and said, a minimum five days a week. And they said, oh, you can't do that. I mean, people are going to quit. He goes, if the ones that quit, they should quit. They're the wrong ones for us. He said, our best year we've ever had. He goes, if you go to young people and you explain to them that if you sit home in your pajamas, he goes, we go to universities and some guys wear T-shirts two days a week. He said, no, every single day you're going to be in our office. And, you know, you explain, if you sit in your pajamas, you're never going to get mentored. You're never going to grow. You never have a career. You're going to have a job at best. He goes, people respond. So the interviewer asked the audience, all CEOs in the room, right? How many of you got people at work five days a week? Less than 20% raised their hand. And then he said, how many of you? People quit. Well, that's what they said, but we'll give you an example. I said, how many of you want them five days a week? Every single hand in the room. But if you saw the other day, UPS just made an announcement. Everyone's got to come back to work five days a week starting, I think it's March 4th. But they announced the same day, letting go of 12,000 people. That's what's going to change the game. There are some jobs that are actually hybrid jobs are great uh-huh. if you're writing software or something like But there's some where collaboration is really needed. And businesses have to adapt that and they have to make tough decisions if they want to continue. I, I, I came up with this. All, I came up with this all by myself, Tony. I'm, I'm no Tony Robbins. But I said, years ago, I tried to teach because our team, TV is kind of about sales, right? Yes. You sell the show, the network. You sell yourself, right? Yes. You chose to go on this and we appreciate it. Maybe versus some other shows. Um, and, and I said, one phone call is worth 50 emails and one handshake is worth 50 phone calls. I agree with you. And, and that was pre, well pre-COVID. The power of people yes. is still underrated, I 100%. think. 100%. And collaboration. You can only do so much on Zoom. And also, it's inviting, you know, Ken talked about it's inviting people to fire people very easily. Because once those people say, I don't want to come in, they make a little mental note. And when it's time to make the drawdown, those are the people who are going to get drawdown first. So we have a generation of people that were paid to stay home. It is more convenient. It is easier in so many ways, but it won't necessarily expand your career. If that's not important to you, there are jobs that will always be available that are hybrid, I think, um, and they're going to be jobs that might be totally remote. But there's going to be a lot more, as you've already seen, a lot more calls to come to work, and there's going to be a lot more conflict about it. But when the economy tightens, I think that's when you're going to find those Do you see the economy place. tightening? It's not, it doesn't matter what I see. The three people I mentioned to you, and I had a whole group of, for seven days from all over the world sharing they all see the world, you know, the economy tightening for sure. And they see that uh, interest rates might stay up a little bit longer than we expect. Uh, well, those guys control about a trillion dollars in assets. So uh, Tony Robbins, the holy grail of investing. Real pleasure. Thanks for coming all the way out here, Tony. Good luck uh, with the book and everything else. And please stay in touch. Thank you so much. Be well. Take, Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. See, handshakes still matter. <laughs> all right. Coming up, you know it is time for Make It Mondays. And we're going to meet an entrepreneur who's bringing new life to some new burgers. Let's have it your way, and it's next. 31% of Russell 1000 companies conduct race or ethnicity-based pay analysis, according to Just Capital. This type of analysis is done to manage equal pay for equal work. Celebrating Black Heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. It is time now for our Make It Mondays, our celebration of American small business. Tonight, it is your burger your way at Build My Burgers in Orlando, Florida. Take a look at how they found it. It was founded by Ali Lalani. I always
always wanted to have a restaurant. It just amazes me how food makes people so happy. My name is Ali Lalani. I'm 38 years old. I'm a founder and CEO of Build My Burgers, located in Orlando, Florida. I've been in the restaurant industry for the last 16 years, working with multiple franchises and different brands. I always wanted to have my own business. My wife and I, we are big foodies and we love burgers. We just decided that we're gonna go ahead and open our own brand and bring it to life in Orlando. Burgers, you know, even though it's so saturated, the quality is never there. If the quality is there, the affordability is not there. You're not able to customize the burger the way you like. So we wanted to bring all of these features together. We just wanted to do it in an open kitchen, in an open setting where customers could actually see their burgers being made. They could hear the sizzle, they could smell the aroma of the burger. And that's how Build My Burger was born. Initially, I had projected the business to cost $200,000. It ended up being $400,000. Out of that, we had $60,000 in savings, $68,000 in unsecured loans. We had about $150,000 in line of credit through credit cards. And then landlord had invested about $122,000 in our business to open Belmont Burgers. We're heavily focused on quality of our food. Everything is fresh. In the store, personally, I put in about 50 hours a week. Once I go home, I'm working on social media. We've built a great following. We have 16,000 followers on Instagram, 6,000 on Facebook. We've gotten 1,600 reviews on Google. Everything is word of mouth. Our projected growth for franchising is to open 51 stores in the next five years. We have almost 60 requests from all over the U.S. I had a great support from my wife, my kids, my family. They kept pushing me to keep doing more and more, and that's what keeps me going every day. And Ali Lalani joins us now. Ali, congrats on your success. You got a 4.8, by the way, on Google Maps. I don't think I've ever seen that kind of a score out of five, so I'm looking. That's awesome. You said you came from other, other places, other franchises. What are you doing different? Where did you see a hole that the big chains weren't doing? So, you know, I've been in a restaurant for so long, and, and every time I would go eat a burger, um, it, was, it was just the quality and the affordability aspect of it. They were not taking care of customers. Something that you know we don't we don't put a lot of focus on uh, your your core customers. And I feel like as long as you can take care of the uh, the people that are coming through your door, they would love to take care of you. And and that's what I, I feel like it's been working a lot for us. You know, we were just talking to Tony Robbins. He advises gigantic CEOs. You're a guy. You and your wife. I mean, I had, you started. You took a huge chance. We're going through some of those numbers. And I got to say, I, I admire it. I don't think I have your intestinal fortitude, shall we say. You had to take on a lot of debt to start this. Yes. Um, I had to pretty much uh, drown before I swim back up. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I would not obviously recommend that kind of risk for someone who's starting out. But uh, because I was in this industry for so long, for 16 years, because I had relationships with a lot of companies out there. And, and I had a lot of support from, from my family, from the community, everyone that, that was, was there to uh, envisioning me to help me grow. Uh, I feel like that, that worked out really, really well for us. We got to change the time of this segment because we're so hungry by this time. It's almost 8 o'clock and the burgers look so good. What's your best seller? I'm just kind of so in my, so I'm envisioning it in my mouth and my mind. <laughs> So it's all build your own, you know, like it's the, the good thing about our concept is, you know, you can put uh, onion rings on your burger, you can, uh, you can put guacamole on it, you can put egg, you can make mix, uh, uh, you know, beef with, with chicken, if you like, uh, it's build your own. So it's whatever the we really value creativity. 
I always tell people you can keep it very simple, keep a single patty, or get go go as high uh-huh. as you like. And I've I've really made like a twelve patty burger uh, in the past, and and that was we had to put a twelve inch bamboo stick to hold it together. <laughs> Wow. Instagram food. Listen, we got a little park down there called Universal. We get to Orlando once in a while. We're going to come down and stop in. Ali Lalani, thank you. Congrats Please on your do. success. Folks, that's it. Make it Mondays. Tell me that did not look good. All right. Be careful out in the snow tomorrow morning. We'll see you tomorrow night on Last Call. Take care. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.